A poet and a scientist walk into a bar. The poet goes up to the bartender and says, Make me something romantic. Something that tells a story. With the constellations and the moon. Something creative. Something passionate. A little while later, the scientist walks up to the bartender and says, give me something grand but simple, like the mass-energy equivalence equation. Give me something with ingredients that mix well because their chemical profiles fit together, like a zipper, something akin to a scientific discovery. The bartender smirks and replies, sure, I just made the same drink for your friend. And that is probably the least funny walk into a bar joke that's ever been told. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Hey guys, I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting, and I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description, and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. Now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. Somewhere in our history, creativity left scientific vocabulary and stuck like glue to the identity of an artist somewhere down the line scientists were deemed cold and robotic and artists were considered ultra sensitive drama queens which is to say they hit both ends of the douchebag spectrum but like all truths the best path is somewhere in the middle and my goal in this episode is to be the first dancer in this metaphorical, old-fashioned high school prom where science is afraid to dance with art and vice versa. See, I think the great creatives, the da Vinci's, can dabble in both art and science. And at the very least, they can appreciate what they've been trained to see as their opposite. The great thinkers, maybe a great scientist can respect great art, and a great artist can respect great science. And I think there's a nice little quote from Richard Feynman, who was an American theoretical physicist who died in 1988. And he says, Poets say science takes away from the beauty of the stars, mere globs of gas atoms, I too can see the stars on a desert night and feel them. But do I see less or more? 
The vastness of the heavens stretches my imagination. Stuck on this carousel, my little eye can catch one million year old light. A vast pattern of which I am a part. What is the pattern or the meaning or the why? It does not do harm to the mystery to know a little about it. For far more marvelous is the truth than any artist of the past imagined it. Why do the poets of the present not speak of it? In a book called The Art and Music of Science by Tom McLeish, he illustrates an important point to explain why science and art mix about the same as oil and water. He says that the threshold to appreciate the wonder of science is so high. The amount of math and scientific jargon you need to know to have in your vocabulary to appreciate a new discovery leaves the beauty only to the ones who can understand it. But couldn't you make the same case for art? I mean, I sure as hell don't understand why someone would pay millions for a solid color on canvas. Or why a sideways urinal would revolutionize the world of fine art. But at the same time, I can look at a piece of collage art and I can feel a sense of wonder without needing an understanding of the background. There are always going to be works that we can look at without needing an extensive background knowledge about the world of fine art that we can just look at and appreciate. And I think by the same token, there are pieces of scientific discovery that we can just appreciate. That if we can visualize and wrap our heads around, we don't need to know all the math behind it. And it can still move us. So I think that's lesson one. And the connection between art and science. Lesson one, every subject has within it multiple levels of sophistication. If you're an artist, I think a great first read to dip your toe into science would be something like Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Because he wrote it with us in mind, with people who don't know all the math and the jargon, who maybe just want to look up at the stars and know something about it that goes beyond what they could have ever imagined. Like that Feynman quote I said earlier. And if you're science-oriented, I think a good first read would be Sum, S-U-M, 40 Tales from the Afterlife, because it was written by a neuroscientist, David Eagleman. But in just giving you those two books, it begs the question, why should we expand our range to our weak point? Why should the mathematically challenged read about physics and why should the seemingly unimaginative scientists read about all these wild and fictional ideas about what happens when we die? And the answer can be summed up in one word. Creativity. The more you know, the more you can create. The more connections you can make, the more scientific revelations and discoveries you can have. Creativity and domain knowledge are the glue between art and science, which is basically to say research and questions, curiosity 
and exploration are the glue between art and science. There's a great quote by Richard Feynman, another quote, study hard what interests you the most in the most undisciplined, irreverent, and original manner possible. Now what that's saying is there is no right way to be curious about something. Let's say you want to learn more about the stars. No one says that you have to be uh, an astronomy major, that now you have to go to school for four years before you can explore your curiosity and learn about the constellations. Hell no. Now, by that same token, maybe you won't become an astronomer. But that's not to say that your curiosity should be limited by formal education. For the scientist who wants to write fiction, you don't have to go back to school or take a course about creative writing. Read the books that catch your eye, the covers that catch your eye. Listen to the things that catch your ear. Curiosity and exploring your curiosity does not need to be limited by some structure, whether it's science or art. I want to talk about Leonardo da Vinci for a little bit. I think when we hear the word, when I hear his name, I associate it with another word, genius. And there's a cool article learning from Leonardo by Walter Isaacson and he has a cool thing that he says he says the word genius oddly minimizes him by making it seem as if he were touched by lightning and I think that is what genius does words like genius and creative minimize what someone is doing they're acting on their curiosity and that's it whether they're science, scientists, um, entrepreneurs, artists. And I think not many of us would go so far as to call a peer genius. But I still think that we do th this thing where we see someone creating and we assume that they're hit with a certain creative spark that we just weren't given that they have a, a muse that we just haven't found. And I think that's complete and utter bullshit. Because the truth about Leonardo da Vinci is not that he had something that no one else had. Yeah, maybe his brain was structurally, structurally a little bit more set for creative thought. Maybe his IQ was a little bit higher than the average person. But to say that, minimizes his will and his ability to act on curiosity. Something that isn't gifted to the lucky few. It's available to anyone. But you have to act on it. And you can't use this horrible excuse that you're just not creative. Because I've had going on 10 interviews now and I continually ask that question, can creativity be taught? And I've gotten different answers, but I don't think I've ever given mine. And I think everyone can be creative. Can be. It's a choice. 
It's a skill, but I don't necessarily think that it's teachable. I think all a teacher can do is present opportunities. Because by and large, creativity, divine, defining creativity, I would define it as the ability to make decisions in the unknown. So by that definition, creativity can't be taught in a known, systematized environment. But then again, there are elements when it comes to art and science that can be taught. The skill of painting, the skill of mixing color, the skill of analyzing films, or knowing certain math formulas can be taught. But creativity is the ability to look at our environment and look where no one else is. There's another quote in that article that I was talking about. And this one was uh, a quote from a German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer. And he says, talent hits a target that no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. And I'll just say that I equate genius in creativity or creative very closely. I realized after recording this episode that I didn't do much for actually explaining the science of creativity, even though that's what I sought to do when I started doing the research for this. And to put it in a simple phrase, it's complicated, really, really complicated. And keep in mind what I'm about to tell you is based off of one chapter in a book and a couple articles from a special edition Life magazine. So please take it with a grain of salt. So I'll just take you through all the all my favorite tidbits of science when it comes to creativity and try to do it in the shortest route in the shortest way possible. But first I want to start off with a myth. The myth of right-brained or left-brained. With the the left-brained thinkers being analytical, critical, uh, skeptical, mathematical, and the right-brained being more intuitive, artistic, abstract. It's partially true and it's partially not. Because what I found out is that the brain likes to share responsibility within itself. So if there's any moment where one side of the brain can do one thing while another side of the brain is doing another half of that thing, it will choose to do that. It's rare for the brain to be so divided. Even though that, yes, left brain does take more of the analytical thinking. That's where language um, stems from. But they, they share tasks, the left brain and the right brain. Now, there was a really cool experiment about these people who were hooked up to fMRI machines and they were doing these word association tests. So for example, they would be given three words, let's say pine, crab, and sauce. And they would have to pick a fourth word 
that can relate to all those? Now the answer for that would be apple. You know, crab apple, applesauce, pineapple. And now there are two ways to go about solving one of these problems. There's an analytical way and an intuitive way. An intuitive is the creative way, what we would associate with creativity of a sudden flash of insight. And it was really interesting because in that experiment, they had these people hooked up to the fMRI machines and they were able to see what, what part of the brain was firing at that split second when they had that insight. And they were also able to look at brain waves. So it's interesting because when someone had an insight, when they used their intuitive process to solve one of the, the problems, they picked up activity in the right inferior superior temporal gyrus. I had to write that word on my hand because I didn't know how to pronounce it. But all that's to say is <laughs> it activated a spot. That's not the crazy part. What I think is the interesting part is that right when they had that insight, there was a little burst of gamma wave, gamma brain wave going on. Now I'm not gonna go through all the brain waves. I would, I'll throw a link on some interesting stuff about brain waves, but gamma is the highest, the fastest frequency brain wave. Then it goes to beta, which is more of the concentration brain wave. Um, then there's alpha and then theta and delta. And each correspond to a different state where delta might be deep sleep and beta might be awake and studying for a test. But it's interesting because that basically is saying, that study is saying that gamma waves were correlated to a creative insight. But it gets even more interesting because they looked at the brain waves a full second before that um, burst of gamma wave. And they found that there was a burst of alpha wave in the right occipital cortex, which is a part of the brain that processes vision. Now, alpha waves are suppressing. They dial down brain activity. They're slower than beta and gamma waves. You might experience them if you're meditating or in what someone would call the flow state. But it's so interesting because it dialed it down right in the visual processing center. And even though the participants were told not to blink or look away from the words, by having those alpha waves, they were able to process the information and have that insight. There's a quote from this article, which I'll um, link uh, in the show notes. But the, the researchers called it a brain blink. They say for an instant before you have an insight, you're less aware of your environment. And that's why in the shower, you might have a great thought. The fabled shower thoughts, which I like to start each episode off with, are a nod to creativity and just wild imagination. Now in the shower, you have 
this sensory restriction, the white noise of the water hitting the uh, tile. There's not much visual stimulation and it allows your brain to turn inward. But I think that there's another piece to why showers may lead to insight. Transitioning a little bit here to something called the default mode network. And we activate the default mode network when we're doing a menial task, something that doesn't require a lot of brain power, whether that's cleaning ourselves in the shower, doing the dishes, driving around. What happens when we're in the default mode network? What'll happen is that your brain will begin focusing on a problem without you trying to solve it. Now, when you try to sit down and solve a problem or brainstorm an idea and it's forced, what could happen is you run into this thing called functional fixedness, a cognitive bias where when you're focusing on directly trying to solve a problem, you're only looking at it in one light. But when you're in the default mode network, you're allowing your thoughts to explore new possibilities, whether you're conscious of it or not. To give it a concrete example, let, let's say you're trying to write a new song and you have all these little tunes, but nothing sounding right. Instead of sitting there and forcing yourself to think harder, it's not going to help because you're already stuck. So the better route is to activate the default mode network. You have to put yourself in those menial states. Whether that is doing the dishes or some other chore. And by putting yourself in those states, you'll naturally brainstorm. It won't feel forced. And you'll have new sudden insights. And that's why constantly watching TV and never having a down moment, always scrolling through social media, it can make it hard to activate the default network. So we might have to do it consciously, consciously take moments uh, to go on a drive with either in silence or just with a quiet song. We have to put ourselves in those states because the technology that we have now isn't going to, isn't going to let us, isn't going to let us activate the default mode network without conscious effort. Now, the final little piece about the science of creativity, which I found the most interesting, was kind of summed up from a guy named, a psychologist named Scott Barry Kaufman, who writes about creativity and intelligence. And I like, he takes a macro view when looking at the process of creativity. He says there are three networks that we flow through when we're in the process of doing something creative. The first is the executive attention network. That's where we're gathering research, we're studying, we're focusing. We're in the zone, but not necessarily brainstorming. This is where we're developing our tools and techniques that we'll then use once we have a creative idea. You have to learn how to film something before you can make your great movie. You have to learn how to use Photoshop before you can begin your great collage. You have to learn how to draw and shade objects before you can draw something that's in your mind's eye. Now the other piece, the, the second piece is the imagination network. 
And that's where we do previously untried things with the information from our studying. It's where we start to connect previously unconnected ideas. When Picasso was learning how to draw, he was using his executive attention network. But when he started to diverge from that and develop his cubist style, he was using the imagination network, trying something that had previously gone untried. And now the final network is called the salience network, where we're toggling between the anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Sorry, it's hard for me to say. But the anterior insula is what helps us monitor the world around us, where we aren't necessarily multitasking, but we can absorb multiple information streams. And then the cingulate cortex is the thing that helps us figure out what's the most important information to focus on, what we need to be concentrating on. And it can switch quickly, which is why we need to toggle between them. As new sources of information come in, we might have to change what we're focusing on. And it's the three, the three networks as a whole that make up the creative process, the executive attention network, the imagination network, the salience network, and they're all activated in different amounts, depending on the creative task at hand. Something like a person playing piano, playing Mozart, a song that they've practiced, they might be um, activating their executive attention network more heavily than their imagination network. Whereas someone doing freestyle rap would be using their imagination network and their executive attention network would not be as heavily activated. And Kaufman writes that creative people are especially good at exercising flexibility and activating or deactivating these brain networks. So it's not necessarily that a creative thinker has this wild imagination network that's greater than the rest of us. It's that they're able to toggle between imagining something and then immediately acting on it. They don't let it roll around in their heads too long. They figure out how to make it, how to create what they're imagining. And the salience network allows them to focus on what's most important in that moment. I hope those tidbits of creative science were enough to hold you over. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Now, there are things to be learned from Da Vinci. And I will say that this article is just a condensed version of the biography about Leonardo Da Vinci, which, sorry to say, I didn't read. But I think this is good because the author of this article did write the book. So I think he knows how to summarize his points well enough. Now, there are some pieces that really stood out to me. Things that I think everyone can learn about Leonardo da Vinci, but before you hear it, you have to understand that he was not one of the lucky few, that he was not gifted with genius that not all of us can have. Because if I believe that, if you believe that, you wouldn't be listening to this. I hope you wouldn't be listening to this. Now, the first, the first point in this article is about being relentlessly curious. 
passionately curious and not necessarily to solve a problem because curiosity is just what interests you and it doesn't have to be sought out for some other means. Curiosity is intrinsically motivated and we don't need to go so far as to figure out and analyze in ourselves what makes us curious. Who cares? If you have a curiosity, pursue it. And maybe if you're like me, your curiosity is in what makes someone curious, what makes someone creative. The, the meta of creativity is what I would say my curiosity is. But I'm willing to bet for most people it's something a little bit more concrete or at least not related to creativity in and of itself. Maybe you like astronomy or physics. Maybe you love films from a certain director, from a certain genre. Maybe you're interested in graphic design or typeface or illustration or novels. It doesn't matter. The fact is everyone has a curiosity. And this is not going to be one of those podcasts where I explain, oh, how do you find your curiosity? You know. And if you're listening to those things that are telling you, you know, go back to when you were a kid to figure out what you're curious about or what your purpose in life is supposed to be. Because as a kid, you knew, fuck that. You know. Don't act like you don't know. You're just putting off the inevitable. Try different things. If you even have the slightest hint that you might be curious about something, pursue it wholeheartedly. And if you don't like it, do something else. That's what I've been doing. I was wanted to do stand-up comedy. I tried it. It was cool. It got me over a, a big fear, and now it doesn't interest me. Now I'm not curious about it anymore. Now I like this medium of podcasting and writing blogs much more, and that's okay. Curiosities can shift, but the point is the pattern of how I'm going about my curiosity, of relentlessly studying it um, in an undisciplined and original manner, as Feynman would say. It doesn't matter what I'm curious about as long as I'm pursuing something that at least in the moment interests me. Now, another piece of the article about da Vinci that I liked was this idea of getting distracted. That you don't, obviously all of us will procrastinate, but that's not necessarily what getting distracted is. Because I think when we procrastinate, we will do something kind of dull. We might clean our rooms to ignore the project at hand, but getting distracted is starting something entirely new, taking on a new project. When you get bored with short films, you start a podcast. And then you go back to the short films and cycle through these things. You know, in Da Vinci's case, if he got bored with a scientific experiment, he'd go and paint and vice versa. And there's this cool thing where it talked about how he wanted to learn about how the valves in the heart open and close, which wasn't relevant to painting the Mona Lisa. 
but he wanted to figure it out just because. Now, I think there's a lot of things about Da Vinci that we can't easily emulate because the time is different. And I think in his case, when he talks about doing scientific experiments, we don't need to do scientific experiments. If we wanted to know how the valves of our heart open and close, we can do a Google search. We can watch YouTube videos about it. So I think that YouTube and Google and reading articles are replacing this doing the experiment ourselves. And of course, we lose something in that of not being able to conduct our own experiment, but we also gain something in that. And we gain the ability to learn new things so quickly, to pursue our curiosity so intensely with such speed that I'm sure if da Vinci was around today, he would relentlessly search these things. And instead of taking three weeks to conduct an experiment, he would spend a five hours down a YouTube rabbit hole and come out knowing more than he possibly could have known in those three weeks. The downside of that, though, I think shouldn't be overlooked. Because it's one thing to learn all these topics about science, but it's another thing to look into a telescope and see a star with our own eyes. There's another little piece, a little tidbit in that article that stood out to me. Two sentences. Vision without execution is hallucination. And skill without imagination is barren. Now this episode is about creativity, not necessarily imagination. But I think it's important to realize that skill and creativity need each other. And I'm not going to go too deep into this because I don't think I'm qualified to talk about it. But that is what the beauty of AI will bring and why we need to lean more heavily into our creative impulses to connect things that don't seem like they should connect rather than just learning the skill. Because eventually technologies will allow us to, will allow us to 3D print things with perfect accuracy and the skill to actually create those things will be minimal. But then we'll have to ask the question, what should we make? And that's where creativity comes in. Because it doesn't always have to be ultra useful. Sometimes it can just be beautiful. When a piano gets invented, it's nothing until you can play beautiful music on it. To make an instrument is merely a skill, but to write and perform a song, that's imagination. That's why we need both the instrument and the ability to write a song. The skill is in playing the instrument. The creativity is in creating something new out of it, a new sound, a new song. The next thing I want to talk about is education and creativity. And more specifically, the rise of technology within education and how that affects creativity. Because I think the jury is out that screen time can um, worsen anxiety and depression and exacerbate ADHD in kids and teens. But we rarely look at 
how it might stunt creativity, especially in kids because we've kind of been trained to assume that kids are the most creative of the population, whether or not that's true. But that is that cultural idea that as we age, we lose our sense of childlike wonder if we don't hold on to it tight, that we lose our curiosity and creativity as we fall into our day job. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that that is how we look at it culturally. And I think I have a interesting perspective because I'm at the cusp of this digital revolution in education. Because ever since kindergarten, we had active boards. And then in eighth grade, we were the first group to get iPads, which then became standard for all the grades below us. Then in high school, we were one of the first to get laptops. Wait, actually scratch that. I didn't get laptops. My younger sister was one of the first groups to do that. So now we have all this technology because the price has gotten cheap enough that we can have these amazing computers at public schools that we get to hold on to. And I in no way want to say that that is anything less than a blessing. But I think my group, my age group, you know, the people in college now, we haven't built our digital literacy. We don't have a solid understanding, or we haven't had, I mean, it's becoming more clear now, but we haven't had an, a solid understanding on how this, all this technology affects us, how this lack of downtime and lack of feeling bored affects us. And I think for people my age, I mean, teen, teenagers and um, people in their 20s, it's, it's on us now. We can't rely on parents or teachers anymore to teach us these things, which will hopefully become more common in the generations below us. But right now, it's on us to kind of wake up to our own, um, to the way technology affects us, to the way it might sap us of our creativity. I think the other issue besides just technology is growing standardization in education. The ACT, the SAT, it only makes sense when we have so many people going to college. I mean, obviously we have our college essays, but even I think those are so formalized. They're looking for something specific. Of course, the outliers get media attention. The person who writes a, a college essay about cheese pizza, who goes to Yale because of it, gets media attention. But for the rest of us, we're still checking boxes. We're just showing off our professional writing ability at the same time. And in college, obviously, lectures are more economically feasible, but they're not generating creativity. Standardized tests, yeah, they're easier to grade, but what are we really learning? I don't want to end on such a bleak note like that, so I won't. Because I think that I feel that I am 
breaking out of the mold. And I want to show that off that people who have creativity are not the lucky few. If anyone saw me in high school, if you knew me in high school, you know I didn't talk much. And maybe that might have meant that I was churning up some great idea. I wasn't. And it wasn't until college and these little steps of overcoming different fears that I really started diving into these creative uh, creative projects that weren't structured by school, that weren't assignments that were given to me. But they came after a realization that creativity is never going to be properly taught in school. The skills, yes. The techniques and tools, of course. But it's our ability to ask a question that hasn't been asked before, to hit a target that no one else was looking at, to create our own rules and assignments. I don't think that can be taught. I really don't. So in that sense, creativity can't be taught. But by the same token, everyone is creative. Everyone is curious about something. And creativity is merely the expression of your curiosity. And maybe that will be in the questions you ask in the scientific world, the hypotheses you come up with, hypotheses, <laughs> the hypotheses you create, or maybe it will be the paintings and collages you make, or the businesses you run. But the point, the point of this podcast, the point of this episode is two things. The first, art and science are not as distinct as we'd like to make them. When they're boiled down to their core, they're really just different sides of the same coin. Art is the seeking of meaning, trying to make sense of things. And science is trying to discover what's true. But that coin that they're both on is an appreciation for nature. And maybe that division between science and art will ever widen. Maybe we won't see another da Vinci in our time. Well, maybe we already have. Maybe Steve Jobs, I might consider him there. But maybe those always maybe those people will always be the minority. But I think for every one of us, if you want to take one thing from this episode, the answer is yes. You have creativity. You have a curiosity. So don't bullshit me when you say you're just not creative, that you're just not curious about anything. I don't have time for those people. I don't want those people to listen to my podcast. The only people I want in my community are the people who can admit that everyone's curious about something. And they can take initiative and act on their curiosity to make something creative in whatever way they see fit. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week.